we're wrapping up a series, or a movement of, of New Testament passages today of what God has to say about our identity. See, I think that we all derive our identity from all sorts of things, don't we? I mean, we derive it from what we look like, how much money we make, where we live, who our friends are. We derive it from past accomplishments, right? Um, things we've achieved. Things that have happened in our lives, experiences, right, that, that have become pivotal to us. And this is normal and even to some degree is healthy and good. These are all the factors that come into our life shaping our identity. But what God is trying to show us through the New Testament is that ultimately, when it comes to our identity, it's God who says who we are. And, and what God has to say about who we are is more important than any of that other stuff that is so central to us in, in understanding and, and, and getting a sense on who we are. And so this morning, I would like to look at one more key passage with you, opening up what God has to say about who we are and who we can be in him. Guys, I want you to follow along in this today. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 16. If you look in front of you, there's probably a Bible underneath a chair. And uh, what I'd like you to do is follow along with me, and we're going to see some key things here that God has to say. Now, key in with me right there at verse 13. So we're at Matthew 16, keying in at verse 13. And this is what happens. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or, or one of those other prophets. And then he asks it, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, there's a key line in here that gets central to what our identity is all about. And I want you to key in with me at this. And it says in verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter. He says this to this guy named Simon, one of his disciples. Simon, now you're Peter. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, whenever the Bible talks about this thing called church, it never means this. Okay? It never means structure. It never means facility. Church in the Bible always means people. It is the people of God who gather together in his name, in Jesus' eye, that is the church. And what I want to know is what this rock is. Because he says that we are being built upon this rock, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. So what is this rock and how does that speak in to this building, if you will, that we're becoming? 
this structure, this, 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 this piece of workmanship that God is putting together. Now, whenever the Bible mentions details, more times than not, they're significant. Have you ever gotten frustrated with this, like, like in the Gospels? Like, it, compared to a modern-day biography, doesn't it seem like so short on the things you really want to know, the important things like, okay, what did Jesus look like, right? And it, and it doesn't say, and like, what did he like to do? And, and tell me about some of the, the day-to-day drama that he would face as he would relate to people. The stuff that makes, makes our, our, our movies and our literature and our TV today, it's kind of glaringly absent, isn't it? And in the ancient world, when details were given, often they were there because they carried some kind of significance with them. And so it begins, and it says that he and the disciples went to a region called Caesarea Philippi. Now, why does the author bother to tell us this? Probably because it's significant. Now, Caesarea Philippi was deep up in the northern bowels on the outskirts of Israel. It is deep, dark, pagan country. If you want to get a frame of reference up here, you can see like Bethlehem right there. And Jerusalem's kind of hanging right there above it. And that would be the nucleus, the capital, the heart of the people of Israel. And the farther you would travel out from that nucleus, often the farther you would get from connection to the people who identified themselves as Jews and deeper into non-Jewish pagan territory. If you see this region up here called the Decapolis, Jesus would travel here all the time, and it was like total pagan country. I mean, sacrificing cats and, and burning, I mean, it was just nuts up there, all right? But if you go even farther into the Badlands, you could see north of Decapolis is a town called Caesarea Philippi. And Matthew begins by saying this is where Jesus goes with his disciples to ask the question. Now, significant at Caesarea Philippi was a shrine to a Greek god named Pan. And if you don't know who Pan is, um, basically... He, he's a satyr. And if you don't know who a satyr is, it's kind of like half man, half goat. You ever see like Mr. Tumnus in, in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? Okay, this is a guy got like pan written all over it. He, he had the body and the face of a man. He had the legs and the waist of a goat. And he had horns. And there was a shrine to him here at Caesarea Philippi that people who were seeking pan would come to pay homage to. Now, pan was known for a number of things. I mean, if you look like a goat, you've got to be associated with goats, Right? So goat herders and goats, they were all about the pan connection. But he was also about desolate places. Wilderness. Out there. Not land of milk and honey, not Egypt, but those haunted places that people don't like to go. And more than that, he was associated with striking terror into the hearts of people's enemies. So if you had conflict or you were going to war, you might just be able to go to Pan so that he would instill panic, and that's where we get the word, into the hearts of those who stood against you. Now, ancient Jews in Jesus' time came to associate Pan with the demonic. Maybe it was the goat thing, Maybe it was the haunted, desolate, wilderness place kind of thing. Remember, Jesus kind of had to go 40 rounds with with the devil out there. 
Or maybe it was just because of the, the, the immorality and the idolatry that he represented. But for them, Pan and the worship of Pan came to be associated with the forces of hell. Now, if you're looking at this picture up here, you can start to see that there's these outcroppings. And these outcroppings were placeholders for shrines. They, they were shrines to put the statues and the idols in. And you can see that if you go next to it, there is a mouth or a big opening, a cave, if you will. And if you look into this cave, it would look like it was going down into the bowels of the earth, and out of it would come a spring. And the Jews of Jesus' day came to call this the gates of hell. Because to them, it looked like an entry to the underworld. Are you with me? Now think about what Jesus says and think about what Jesus does. He and his disciples come to Caesarea Philippi. He brings them there and he goes, who do people say that I am? And people are realizing there's something different about Jesus. I mean, you can't mistake this, no matter what you choose to believe or who you choose to follow. And some were saying, you know, he's some kind of miracle worker, like Elijah. Maybe a new prophet, like a Jeremiah. Or one of the others. Or who knows, maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead. Maybe it's him. And it's here that Jesus asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And this one guy named Simon stands up. His dad's name was Jonah. And he goes, you're the Christ. You're the one. Not a one, but you're the one. You're more than that. You're heaven sent. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says something really interesting, right? He goes, blessed are you. Those are words that you want to hear God say. If God comes up to you and goes, blessed are you, it's just kind of like a, you know, kind of moment. And he goes, blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you. You didn't get this on your own. You didn't just kind of like sit down and like work the math and figure this out. This has been shown to you by heaven itself. My my, my father, God, has shown this to you. And then he says something significant. And I tell you, now I'm calling you Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And what won't stand against it? What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? What is this rock? Is it possible that when Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, this was rooted in their mind? Is it possible they were even standing here? And here at the very place that represents all that is evil in this world, a symbol of the forces of hell, Jesus says, do you see these gates? Do you see this shrine? Do you see where Pan dances and panics people? right here on this rock. I'm going to build my church because hell got nothing on me. It cannot stand against it. It's like Jesus marching right into the heart of pagan territory, right into the heart of the kingdom of darkness and going, who's in charge? Who's going to win? It's like American forces going into Berlin after World War II and setting up a capital. It's like if Al-Qaeda were to come into Washington, D.C. and say, this is our home base now. 
It is a testimony of power and victory, saying there is nothing in this world that can stand against me. And it says something else I think that's very interesting for you and for me. See, all my life, I had been led to believe and had impressed upon me that church was meant to be a refuge. It was meant to be a safe place and a sanctuary from which we can be protected and shielded from the forces of evil in the world around. But that's not what Jesus says in this passage. For Jesus, the church is on the offensive. And his kingdom is something that is invading darkness, not hiding from it. For Jesus, being the people of God means going into the heart of darkness, possibly afraid but with boldness, saying, I've got nothing to fear because Christ is building his church in the heart of that which is most against him. And nothing can stand against it. And I think about what Jesus says to this guy named Peter. Well, a guy named Simon, really. See, throughout the New Testament, we think of him as Peter. But did you realize his name really isn't Peter? Like, how does Jesus even address him? Simon, son of Jonah, right? Thankfully, the New Testament writers kind of like throw Peter in there a lot before this happens. So, oh, that's who you're talking about. But do you, do you realize that Peter isn't just a name? I mean, like, like today, we got people named Pete or Peter, and it's like, cool, I like how it sounds, right? But in the ancient world, names meant something. They spoke to your character or, 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 or the hopes for your destiny. Parents didn't often just pick them because that sounds cool. So when Jesus comes along and names him Peter, he's saying something about him too. Do you know what Peter means? Rock. Here it is. It, Petros in Greek is where we get the name Peter, which is a play on words of a very similar noun called Petra in Greek, which actually makes rock. So how should the passage read? And I tell you, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Is Jesus saying something else as well? Because if the church is people, Peter is people. And when Jesus says that he's going to build his church on this rock, this rock is not just some metaphysical, theoretical idea that's floating out there. This rock is you. Wrap your mind around the idea that the God of heaven looks at you and chooses to nickname you Rock. And you're like, but my name is Francis. And he goes, not my book. You are a Rock. Who wants a nickname like Rock? I mean, Rocky's cool, right? I mean, it's not like a name like Pudding or something like that, you know? You are Pudding, man, and you're just going to be like moldable. Yeah. He doesn't say that. He goes, you are the rock. You are unstoppable. You are immovable. You are strong. You are foundational on this rock, on you, on each of you. Jesus says, I will build my church. Think about 
the impact and significance of what it means that God thinks that way about you. Is that how you see yourself? When you think of your identity and who you are, do ideas like bulwark, unshakable, stronghold, powerful, or significant player in the kingdom come to mind? If you're like me, my, my guess is probably not. But you know what's cool? It doesn't matter. Because what matters is what God has to say about you. And that's what God has to say to each person who recognizes Christ for who he is. Because you're the one. You are the one, the son of the living God. It's like Jesus going, if we would dare to say that he is the one, Jesus dares to say that we'll be a rock in his kingdom. But the story doesn't end there. It's really weird, isn't it? Are you still looking? This like total spiritual high point. It's like, oh my gosh, right? And then Jesus does the most natural thing imaginable. Don't tell anyone. I mean, like, really? I mean, isn't this why you're here? Don't tell anyone? And it goes on to say that from that time on, now that it's kind of out on the table, now that it's revealed, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, I'm in verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed, because that's what you expect. And on the third day be raised to life. Now check it out. Rock took him aside and rebuked him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to, to Jesus turned and said to Rock, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and do not have in mind the things of God, but only of men. I wonder about how easy it is to turn from rock to Satan. Because it seems like it happens on a dime, doesn't it? What does it mean that in one moment Jesus can look at each of us and go, rock, and then the next minute, go Satan? Which does, I guess, affirm what we've always thought about many of our mother-in-laws, right? That sometimes it actually may be true. But think about the significance of what this means for your identity. That in God's eyes, the possibility is not only for rock, but also for Satan. Does Jesus look at you and say, hey, Satan, to you? See, when it comes to our identity, what God says really is what matters most. And it seems that the nature of our identity 
at any given moment in God's eyes depends on a certain amount of mitigating factors that seem to boil down to the simple question, are we in harmony and connection with God's ways? Or are we more concerned with our own? Are we seeking to do what God says? Or more concerned with what seems right on our own? You know what's rough about this? I mean, like, Peter's really getting kicked in the teeth on this, isn't he? But really, can he kind of, like, side with the guy? I mean, is he really doing anything on the surface that looks bad? I mean, is he like sitting there going like, hey man, let's kind of Google this pan thing tonight. No, what's he doing? He's trying to keep his friend from getting killed. He's trying to keep his friend from doing something that in his mind seems absolutely stupid. Marching into the heart of Jerusalem, into the heart of darkness, into the heart of where hell wants to reign, where people want to kill him, and going... Stay out of that place. Stay safe. Does Peter actually believe that the church will prevail over the gates of hell? Because if he did, there should be no problem going to Jerusalem, should there? See, the difficult thing is that so often the choice between God's way and our way isn't that clear. Because sometimes our way seems really good. And this is why it is so vital to be in deep connection with God, because so often, are you with me, things that look good at deeper levels turn out not to be. And that becomes the difference between Satan or rock. See, the question of this passage is really, what does God call you? I'm going to submit that throughout every day, he calls you both. But what's so amazing to Jesus, about Jesus, is that even when he calls us Satan, he still goes to Jerusalem to suffer and die to redeem Satans like you and me and bring us back into this thing called rock. God wants to use you guys and he wants to use you so amazingly. To him, you are significant players in the kingdom. And he promises you that the forces of hell, as scary as they look, and the end cannot prevail against you. Recognize him for who he is. And listen to what he has to say. For who you are and for your identity. It's the most significant question on the table. It's the most important thing to come to grips with. God, make me a rock, not a Satan. And I'd like to invite you to pray. God in heaven, 
that there's some comfort in the fact of knowing that uh, we come to see your son for who he is because you show him to us. Show him to us today, God. Help us to see. No matter what other people are saying, help us to go, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And God, help us to believe that what you have to say about us is true, true to who we are, that we are rocks. Rocks on which you will build your church and against which the gates of hell cannot stand. Help us to believe it, God, when, when, when darkness reigns, when we're afraid, when we're thrown into the middle of it, when, when we're drowning, when we feel like we're alone. Help us to believe, God, that, that, that your word is true, that that there's power that you're giving. Angels that you're sending. Protection that you're reigning forth. And even, God, when it costs us, may we seek your way. Tune us to your will so we don't become a stumbling block instead of a rock. Tune us to your will so we become something that you can use to build with not to shatter glass. Forgive us, God, for the times when we Satan out. <laughs> Forgive us. And call us back again. So here we are, Lord. Here our prayer. And guys, I want to invite you to pray these, these next words with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. May the words of that prayer shape your identity.